0: I'm going to start by putting a phrase up on the screen, and I want you to raise your hand if this phrase means anything to you. Please excuse my dear Aunt Sally. Anybody know what that means? Yeah? Some people? Some of you wish you forgot it? Okay. I'm going to explain what it is. Please excuse my dear Aunt Sally. Uh, At least when I was growing up, they would teach us in school as a memory tool. Uh, to remember in math the order of operations. So when you're dealing with an equation, the order of things you go through, parentheses, exponents, multiplication, division, addition, subtraction, that is called the order of operations. I don't know if you guys remember this. Um, And so, for example, this tells you how to uh, uh, approach an equation. So, for example, if you had this equation here, 3 plus 4 times 2 you might think, well, I can just sort of go left to right. So, uh, for example, you could go three plus four. Okay, that's seven times two, 14, right? Wrong, according to the order of operations, because you have to go in the order uh, above. So, what you'd have to do is handle the multiplication first, four times two, eight, and then add the three, and you get 11. So, why am I taking you back to math class right now? <laughs> like Some of you are like, oh my gosh, I so never wanted to hear about the order of operations again in my life. The reason I'm going to it is, is that there, um, there really is kind of an order of operations when it comes to our relationship with God. We can have all the right numbers, all the right components in our relationship with God, but if our approach uh, uh, in our relationship with God is out of order... If we approach those components out of order, we get the wrong answer. We get a skewed result. We wind up with a warped view of God, of ourselves, and as a result, we become frustrated or we have misplaced expectations. Ultimately, we we experience pain because we've confused um, some aspects of how um, our relationship with God is supposed to function. And the the equation that we're going to kind of be looking at has to do with our faith and our works. Faith in God and our obedience to his commandments. Now, we talk a lot here about faith in God, trust in God, and we do because that's all that's required for salvation. That's all that's required to be in a relationship with God is faith in him. But our actions are really important too. God calls us to live in a certain way, to honor him, to obey his commandments. We are commanded to do certain things and not do other things for his glory and also for our good. But because our actions are measurable and our faith isn't as measurable, we tend to fixate on the actions. We tend to fixate on the behaviors. And so our relationship with God can become primarily about, you know, following the rules, striving to be a highly moral person. Um, But God doesn't want it only to be that way. We can also go the other direction where we think our actions don't even matter. You know, I'm like, I'm saved by grace. God loves me. I'm good. So the way I live isn't really that important. That's not true either. God cares deeply about us following his commands and living the way he calls us to live. Here's the truth is that our faith in God and obedience are inseparably woven together. And so the question that we're going to be addressing today, um, kind of behind the parable that we're going to look at, is this What is the relationship between faith and obedience? What's the relationship between faith and obedience? we're going to see what Jesus has to say on the matter. So if you brought your Bible, uh, turn to Matthew 21, verse 28. Uh, If you're unfamiliar with the layout of Scripture, Matthew is the first book uh, in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. So if you're flipping a Bible open, it's like 70, 75% of the way through, you'll find Matthew there. Um, We will have the Scripture up on the screens, though, too, if you want to follow along there. And then on the tables, we have... um, highlighters and pens and note cards if you want to take notes as we dive into uh, the word here. Um, So we're in this series called Jesus in His Own Words. We are trying to put ourselves Back in the first century, when Jesus was walking around teaching, and and one of his distinctive ways of teaching was to tell parables, these short stories that illustrated a spiritual truth. And so we're looking at these parables. We're trying to kind of almost put ourselves in the audience as if we were there hearing him speak. And so today, we're going to look at what scholars have called um, the parable of the two sons. And so we're going to dive into it, Matthew 21, 28. Jesus said... What do you think? Now we're going to stop right there. Um, we only got four words in, but it's important to stop because uh, he, Jesus is saying, What do you think? So, who's the you? Who's he talking to? We've we've talked about this the last couple weeks. It's always important to think about audience. Who is Jesus speaking to? Why is he saying what he's saying? Because that really helps us understand the significance of what he's teaching. So in this case, um, in Matthew 21, when he's about to tell this parable, what has happened is Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem toward the end of his ministry. Um, some of you might know what happened on Palm Sunday when he's, uh, he is welcomed with celebration into the city of Jerusalem, um, and he goes promptly into the temple and begins critiquing and criticizing the leadership, the religious leadership in Jerusalem, basically saying, you have warped this whole thing. You know, y- y- this entire experience of relationship with me, you are missing it, and you have made this something else. And uh, the religious leaders, as you can imagine, were not a huge fan of this. They they didn't appreciate being called out. And so in chapter 21, as we approach this parable, what's happened is Jesus is, is in Jerusalem. He's criticizing the leadership. And they finally get to the point where they just say to him, by what authority are you saying this stuff? Like, who are you? Why do you have the right to come into Jerusalem to the temple and criticize us and basically act like you own the place? Who, who are you? Where do you get off acting like this? And so Jesus is answering that question. Who do you think you are, basically? He's going to answer that question several ways. This parable is one of the ways he answers that question. So let's look at the parable itself. So he says to the religious leaders, what do you think? And then here's the parable. There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. So let's stop there. Uh, As Jesus often did in his parables, he would would have two people in the parable uh, with basically two contrasting examples of how to respond to God. Um, And so in this case, the father in the parable represents God, and he has a command for his sons, go work in the vineyard. Uh, A very normal thing for someone in that era to say. I mean, it was an agricultural environment. You know, people lived in extended family compounds, essentially. Go work in the vineyard. That's what you're going to do today. We need to do that. Go. So it was a very normal thing to to say. And then the first son is initially defiant, right? He says, no, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) I don't want to do that. But then his actions tell a little different story because it says he changed his mind and went. So if you're taking notes, highlight those two little phrases, kind of the first son's response. He says, I will not, there's his words, and then later he changed his mind and went. So there's his actions. The second son is the reverse. He says the right thing right off the bat. He says, yeah, sure, I'll do it. But then his actions show that his words didn't mean much because he wound up not going. So highlight that. That's the second son's response. He says, I will, sir. And he did not go. The second son reminds me. I don't know if you guys have seen this meme. It it takes different forms. It always makes me laugh. Um, You know, hey, if I say I'm going to do something, I'll do it. There's no need to remind me every six months. That's basically the second son. Yeah, I'll do it. And then uh, so not going to do it. So that's the second son. And Jesus tells this parable, and then he finishes by asking his hearers, again, the religious leaders in Jerusalem, you know, who obeyed the Father? And they answer correctly, the first, you know, the one who sounded defiant, but ultimately obeyed. And Jesus' goal when he tells these parables is to get the listener, including us, to consider what category we are in. You know, are we a first son or a second son, type of person in our response to God. And then Jesus goes on and explains what he meant by this parable. So let's keep reading. Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. So let's talk about what he means there. Um, I, I just really want you not to miss the gravity of this situation. He is in Jerusalem talking to the priests, the people with all the power, the religious leadership. And he looks right at them and basically says, these people you despise, these tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners, they get it. They understand. I mean, think about that, what he's saying. He's saying them, the the tax collectors, thieves, you know, prostitutes, they're the first son in the parable. That's who he's equating them with. They seem to reject God, but ultimately they are obeying. And, And he's telling the leadership, you know, these immoral people who you want nothing to do with, actually you need to be emulating them on some level. I mean, it's just a shocking thing for him to say. And he refers here to John the Baptist. If you're taking notes, just circle his name, John, verse 32. Um, John, uh, the Baptist, had, had come as a forerunner to Jesus, had been preaching the gospel, telling people about salvation through faith, turning to the Lord. And, and Jesus is saying, you didn't, you didn't believe him. You know, highlight that. It says, uh, he came to show you the way. You did not believe him. They did not respond to the good news, the, the gospel. Um, and then he says, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they did. So highlight that, did. So they did respond to the gospel, the the message about Christ. They responded in faith. So Jesus is telling, through this parable, the religious leadership, the establishment, they're more like the second son, which just must have blown their minds to have him saying that to them in their temple on their turf. He's saying, you know, you guys, you know, you talk a big game like this second son, but you don't really get it. You don't get it. Because deep down, they hadn't changed their hearts. They hadn't really committed themselves to following the Lord. But at this point, we need to ask a question. Why is belief part of this discussion? You know, Jesus is talking to them here about believing and all that kind of stuff. Um, But the parable seemed to be right about, just all about actions, right? It was kind of like the father said, go do this, and the son either did or didn't. It was like just all about behavior. But now when Jesus is explaining it, he's explaining it in terms of belief, in terms of faith. He's saying to the religious leaders, you didn't believe John, you didn't believe the message about Christ. He's saying the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe, you know, and that these sinners, as they're turning toward God and changing their life, that had no impact on the religious leaders. It didn't cause them to repent and believe. Highlight that. They didn't repent and believe as a result of seeing sinners changing their life and turning toward God. It had no impact on them. I think the reason that Jesus is talking about belief right now in explaining the parable, uh, which is mainly about obedience, is that obedience and faith are, like I said, inseparably linked. Even that phrase, repent and believe, that's what's in view there. Repent is making choices to turn toward the Lord and follow him, and belief is about what you believe. So, you know, repentance and, and belief are paired up together. So I want to go back to the question that we we're kind of asking behind all of this. What's the relationship between faith and obedience? Jesus is giving us a clue here with the parable. Here's the answer. Obedience is the natural outgrowth of a saving faith in Jesus. Obedience is the natural outgrowth of a saving faith in Jesus. The the parable is getting at this that our actions and what we believe, our heart, are, are intertwined. But once you key into this idea that obedience follows faith, you start to see it all over Scripture. Um, and I want to just run through a couple examples of that to drive that point home. I always love to go back to the very first time God gave a list of rules, the Ten Commandments, um, because I think we misunderstand what that is. It, we, we think, oh, you know, God just gives us rules and obey, and, you know, hopefully he'll be nice to you if you obey. But, but that's not even what we see. When you go all the way back to Exodus... Uh, In Exodus 20, when God gives the Ten Commandments, it says this, God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And then here's the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. So did you notice what happened there? God rescued them and then gave them the rules. There was a relationship there. And then here's how I'd like you to live. It wasn't live this way and I'll consider rescuing you. He initiated, and so we have to have that lens, and Jesus spoke about this in John 14, about the relationship of faith and and, uh, obedience. Look what Jesus said. He says this very directly in John 14. He says, if you love me, keep my commands. Just let that sit for a second. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. You know what he's saying there is the one claiming that they love God will be found obeying. That will be a feature of their life. And, by the way, uh, this is a beautiful thing he says here. You're not on your own to do that. He says you're going to have the spirit of truth. That means the Holy Spirit helps you obey. He gives you the desire to obey and the ability to obey. You're not on your own trying to do that. And then uh, John, one of Jesus's disciples, hits this same point in one of his letters, 1 John chapter 2. John wrote this, we know that we've come to know him. He's talking about Jesus. We know that we've come to, uh, to know Jesus. How? If we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. Now, that's a strong uh, word there, liar. But, but I think John was trying to uh, make the, the strong point that if we claim to love God, but yet we're not making any choices to follow him, to align our lives with his priorities, we have to ask ourselves, you know, do we really know him? Do we really love him? Because a natural outgrowth of a saving faith in Jesus is going to be obedience, not perfect obedience. But a desire to obey steps toward obedience. That should be something you see naturally occurring if you have a genuine faith in Christ. Paul, the Apostle Paul, speaks about this with another metaphor that I think really hits the the target of what we're talking about, and it's the fruit metaphor. From Galatians 5, um, he says this. Paul says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, And self-control. He's saying if you've been saved and you have the Holy Spirit in your life, the fruit, the natural outgrowth of that inner faith is going to be a changed life. You're going to begin to see these qualities grow in you. You're going to find that you have more peace or that you're being more kind or or, uh, gentle, more self-controlled. These qualities are a result of a saving faith. They're not a prerequisite like It would be a mistake to interpret this passage of, man, I've just got to try hard to be more gentle. You know, (laughs) then God's going to be nice to me or he's going to be happy with me. No, the fruit of the Spirit, if the Spirit is in you, these qualities, you're going to be able to observe them. Um, Not necessarily all at the same rate or anything like that, but you'll begin to see these things flower in your life. That's what the image is. These qualities are a result of a saving faith. And then one more, this is maybe the most concise and beautiful articulation of what we're talking about. Jesus said this in John 15, 5. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Is faith important? Of course. Is obedience to God important? Yes, yes. But we cannot get the order of operations wrong on that or we end up with a very skewed view of ourselves and of God. And so I want to put on the screen uh, kind of what the, uh, the biblical order of operations is in terms of our faith life. It begins with an invitation. God has invited us into relationship with him. And by the way, it was a very costly invitation. He paid everything to give us that invitation. So it started with him. Then we turn in in and freely put our faith in him we place our trust in him for salvation and then we have salvation if we've placed our trust in him then comes the repentance the obedience turning our life aligning our life with his priorities and then reliance we're relying on him on the holy spirit to enable us to do that it's not us just like, okay, I believe that God did all the heavy lifting to save me, but now all of my growth from here on out, it's all on me. I've got to do the heavy lifting in my spiritual growth. No, the Holy Spirit changes you from the inside out. And so obedience and reliance on God, those two go together. You could actually maybe switch that last arrow with a plus sign. It's, it's obedience and reliance together. So we can't, we, we need to remember this order of operations because we can't imagine uh, that by obeying God's commands or like striving to live a moral life that we're gonna then get God's attention and oh, he'll say, hey, I wanna be in a relationship with this person and then we'll be saved. That's the wrong order of operations. That's this. That's basically trying to take obedience and front load it and say, if I start there, then all of these other things will be true as a result. That is simply not what Jesus spoke about, and it is not the picture uh, that we see in Scripture. That might feel right. In fact, our culture preaches that gospel in a million ways. But that's the wrong order of operations. That's, you're getting the answer 14 there, but the right answer is 11. This leads you to a view of God that says you've got to prove yourself to him. You have to earn his love. This actually says you are saved by your good deeds or your excellence at obeying. The tragic irony of that is if you chase obedience for obedience's sake, you'll actually end up being disobedient because there's no relationship there. You're not actually chasing the Lord in a relationship with him. You're chasing your own moral performance and it will not deliver. So back to the parable, the sinners that Jesus was talking about, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they were functioning in the correct order of operations they they had heard the message of the gospel believed that god had invited them into a relationship they had placed their faith in him they were saved by faith and they were in a process of turning their life toward following him now there were some vestiges of their old life that were still there probably and 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 because you know, it's not requiring perfection. It's a process of following and growing, and it's a lifelong process. But for the religious leaders that Jesus was, was uh, engaging with, they were not comfortable with this whole idea of in-process. That that didn't cut it for them. You know, they seemed to think that there was a, a list of prerequisites for a relationship with God or, or the ability to grow spiritually. But the correct biblical uh, order of operations, again, is the only prerequisite is faith in Christ. And by the way, that's not even the first step. The first step is that he initiated the relationship and invited us. So it always began with him. And our first step is just faith. It's faith that uh, he is who he says he is, that he loves us, and that we can trust that he um, has paid the penalty for our sins and has rescued us. That's the only prerequisite for a relationship with God is faith. But these religious leaders in Jesus's day, they're trying to like skip steps and and just go straight to obedience and and think like I'm going to gain something if I start there. But all their efforts are going to be in vain. Jesus said it, apart from me, you can do nothing. You can't grow in your own strength. You can't be a better person. You can't arrive where you think you want to arrive by yourself. You need me to do this in you. That's what Jesus was saying. So these leaders were getting the order wrong, and we are so prone to do that as well. And I'm not talking about people who are uh, new to the faith. I think people new to the faith are in danger of this. I think seasoned Christians, I myself, fall into that thinking all the time. It's like unless we are continually reminding ourselves of the gospel, of who Jesus is and what he did for us and what he said. If we're not proactively reminding ourselves of that, we will devolve into this. It's like that's the default that we'll always go back to is trying to earn our standing with God through our moral efforts and our obedience. But that's not how it works. God has initiated this relationship with us. The only thing required to step into that relationship is faith in him. Then comes the part where we turn and follow him and obey his commands, but we're not doing it alone. He's with us, he's in us, and he's enabling us to do that. So how do we do this? How do we grow in this way? How do we know Jesus as Lord and Savior? You know, he's called that in scripture, Lord and Savior, and that implies the two things we're talking about. Lord is about authority. So he's our Lord if we submit to him and follow his commands. And he's a Savior, he's the one who rescued us. Both are true. So how do we know him truly as Lord and Savior and follow him and begin this this process of growth? Um, How do we take practical steps to obey while living in the confidence that we are loved and accepted through faith? That process is called um, discipleship. That's the biblical word for it is discipleship. Um, I want to look at just a couple verses. This is the final charge that Jesus gave to his followers uh, before he ascended into heaven. In Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Jesus said this, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always uh, to the very end of the age. The term used most often in the Bible for a follower of Christ is disciple. That that was the word Um, and so I want to give you a definition real quick. This Greek word, mathetes, is the word for disciple, um, but it literally just means learner or a student. The word disciple strikes us as a religious word. Um, that tends to be how it's used in English, but in the first century world, that was a word that just meant student, learner, and that is the word most often used in the New Testament for people are in a relationship with Christ, as their disciple. Um, by con- So this word, Greek word, shows up hundreds of times in the New Testament to describe Jesus's followers. Um, the word Christian only shows up four, four times in the New Testament. Now, that's not to say we shouldn't use that word, it's to say that was a word that kind of um, came about later, and uh, this was the primary word used to describe people who follow Christ, was disciple. And the, the, the word disciple in the first century, it, it painted a picture of you've got a teacher and he has students sitting um, at his feet learning and, and saying, I want to learn what you're teaching. I want to follow in your footsteps. I want to um, align my life with what you're teaching. And this was true for Jewish rabbis um, this is true of Greek philosophers. It was a common thing. Uh, these celebrated teachers would have disciples who would literally sit at their feet and listen and learn. And so that's the picture is, is of what discipleship is. And Jesus kind of defined discipleship in the verse. He says, uh, teaching people to obey. So there's the teaching element right there in what we read in Matthew 28. Uh, but it's interesting. It, those verses have all the elements we've talked about. He says, Go make disciples, baptizing them. So that means they've placed their faith in Christ. Then it says, teach them to obey. And then, by the way, the last phrase says, I'm going to be with you. So that same idea we laid out earlier is there. Make disciples, the first step is faith, then obey. By the way, I'm with you through this whole thing. So we see it right there um, in that final charge that Jesus gave. Um, So... We're thinking about this order of operations, the fact that we're invited into relationship with him. We put our faith in him. Uh, we've been saved. And then we take these steps to grow as his disciple and rely on him to do that transformative work. I want to talk for just a second about some of the things we do here at Real Hope that uh, would fall under the heading of discipleship, things that, that enable us to turn more and more toward following Christ. So uh, doing what we're doing right now counts in part as discipleship. We are going into God's word. You know, we, we open up our Bibles. We take notes. We want to learn. We want to sit at the feet of the Lord. Um, worshiping together through song, that's part of discipleship because we're singing words that declare who God is and who we are and what the relationship is. Uh, serving together in this community, um, both uh, in Our church in all the volunteer roles, but also out in the community serving people in need. That's part of uh, discipleship Uh, our global missions projects. Jenny mentioned earlier. We've got this meeting next Sunday. Uh, That's a part of discipling not only because there are people, you know, in in India and other parts of the world that that our ministry is involved that are going to hear the gospel and be discipled, but it disciples us too. Because the more we are involved in that in, in God's work around the globe, it cultivates in us. Uh, a global perspective and a desire to see his kingdom grow uh, in all parts of the world. Um, Cultivating a a biblical outlook on giving and generosity, that's part of discipleship. Investing in kids and students, the next generation of discipleship, that's happening right now. We have kids and students on this campus uh, who are learning right now about Jesus, about faith, about uh, all kinds. I am just stunned uh, (laughs) when I hear my five-year-old son, Luke, and my three-year-old uh, daughter, Nora, just spout out things they're learning at church. And I'm like, wow, that is amazing. Like, I so did not know that when I was your age. Um, and so it's incredible what God's already doing here in terms of discipling uh, people through real hope. But we want to do more. We want to do more. We, wanna, we want to deepen relationships here, and we want to step more intentionally into discipleship, especially now that we're growing. I mean, our church is growing, um, and uh, we have lots of people in our midst, and you may be uh, someone like this who's just brand new to church, or you're just hearing this stuff for the first time. Um, And so some of you sitting out there might be thinking, you know, I really could use some discipleship. Like, I would like to learn more about God. I would like to grow in my faith. I'd like to have someone who's a couple steps down the road from me helping me take some steps down the road. So there's plenty of people in our church where that's true. Um, and then there's plenty of people, too, who who are in a position uh, because they, you know, a more seasoned believer to, to turn around and see someone a couple steps behind them and say, hey, you know, I've learned some lessons. Why don't you follow me? Now, I know all you guys are super humble who I'm talking about there. And you're like, who am I to disciple anyone? Uh, you know, I've got so much growing. And that's true. And that's the right heart to have. But none of us are ever arriving. So, again, it's, you know, who's a couple steps behind you that you can, You can invest in and and, uh, help lead toward spiritual maturity. And then, you know, if you're kind of new to the faith, you know, is there someone I can learn from? That's that's what the church is designed to do, um, is to uh, be a a community of disciples. Um, So what we're doing is we're actually putting together uh, some discipleship groups. And this is not going to be a one-size-fits-all type of system, you know, where they all look the same or anything like that. Um, we view our role as just trying to connect you, you people together, um, to, to grow together, to find people you can invest in or someone who can invest in you to spur each other on. This is how God designed his church to work. Uh, he uses us in each other's lives. Um, and we found this great book that we're going to suggest that our groups kind of start with. Um, it's called The Walk by Stephen Smallman. and I love the subtitle, Steps for New and Renewed Followers of Jesus. And it's just an incredible book that really leads you through so much of what this journey is. I even love the title, The Walk. I mean, it is a lifelong journey of growth. And so um, what we'd like you to do is prayerfully consider joining one of these discipleship groups. Uh, They'll probably be smaller. It could be one, two, three, four, five people, you know, something like that. Um, Pray about being a a discipler or a disciplee. I don't know if that's a word, but I like it, so I'm going to use it, disciplee. Discipler or disciplee, this is for everyone. We all can grow. And by the way, if you're leading someone else, you're growing through leading them too. (laughs) So um, that's kind of what we are um, wanting to do is take some steps. Um, A lot of this has kind of happened organically, but we're at the size now as a church. We just want to be a little bit more intentional uh, about creating more of those opportunities to invest in others or be invested in. Now, here's what we're not interested in. We are not interested in creating cliques of maturity in our church, where it's like, well, here's a group of super mature, seasoned Christians, and then like, here's some people, you know, they're all brand new to church. No, we want to have uh, people in various stages of their spiritual growth uh, meeting together, spurring each other on, and it is a lifelong process. I'm not saying you've got to sign up for these groups for the rest of your life, but your spiritual growth <laughs> It, it, it's it is a process, and that is just something you can either embrace or not. Um, but it is a process. It is messy. It's inconsistent. It defies systems. There will be bumps in the road, but it is so worth it. It is so worth it. And so we're not we're not trying to like sell you some product on discipleship, like be in a discipleship group and you'll have X results. No, we're inviting you into a process. Actually. Uh, Jesus invited all of us into this process. And so we just want to open the door for that uh, to happen here at our church. Um, So I'm going to invite up in a second our discipleship pastor, Percy, um, to talk a little bit about how this is going to look and and the the practical steps of if you want to be discipled, here's how you let us know. If you want to be available to disciple others, here's how you let us know. And and I will say, Percy's been pouring himself into this. Uh, For a number of months, he's been meeting with Uh, people who have been walking through this book with him. We have leaders who are already ready to go, who are like, I want to disciple someone. I am willing to lead in this way. So if you want to grow in your faith, there are literally people in our church waiting uh, to walk through this with you. And so um, I'm going to have Percy come up in a second, but I just want to pray first that God helps us, as he promises to, to be his disciples and to make disciples. As we're called to do. And that in the process of doing that, we would get that order of operations right. Knowing that God loves us before we step into obedience. Never viewing the steps of obedience as efforts to earn his love or earn our salvation. We have his love, and if we've placed our faith in him, um, we have our salvation. So our goal is to then grow as a result of that um, and grow with the confidence that we are loved the knowledge that we are loved, have that rooted down uh, deep in our hearts. And so I want us all to embrace that, that knowledge, that idea that our obedience is so important, it's part of Jesus being Lord and Savior, but it is the outgrowth of our saving faith and our relationship with Christ.